Okay, man, I felt like Matthew McConaughey doing it like that. That's ridiculous. Whether you are in-house or online, you are loved, you are wanted, and we're glad you're here. Let me say a couple of things first. I bring you greetings from Central Arkansas. We got to experience one of our grandsons being baptized into Christ last Sunday, so we were there to witness that, and that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. We watched the service, and I think you women are leading us again in a great way. What was it, 11 or 12 testimonies from that fantastic retreat? It seems like, Mark, we're going to have to kind of pick up the beat here with that and do something like that with the men's retreat too. Uh, just being able to hear from so many different people on on the good things, the way the Lord was speaking to you, uh, man, that was rich. Another thing I want to say is I have been a part of many meaningful communion services, but never have I had a little one so touch my heart with prayer. Peter, that was terrific. Thank you so much for doing that. Did you know Psalms 8 says that when children praise, the demons are struck dumb and mute? That's an incredible thought. There was a moment this morning where it was just a holy, sacred day. I suppose that moment just continues on. That was, that was terrific. And another thing is, I just don't want you guys to forget that on December the 10th, I think it is, the second Sunday, we are all meeting up with Ben and Libby. We're meeting up on Bear Mountain for our annual holiday hayride. So make sure you have that. That's just three weeks from today. So make sure that you've got that. We, it'll be coming out in announcements, but I just didn't, didn't want too much time to lapse before you had a chance to plan for that. Such a great, great moment. Okay, uh, first, a fictitious story. One day, a woman expecting twins was in a car accident and fell into a coma for six months. When she awoke from her coma, she saw that she was no longer pregnant, and she was frantic and asked the doctor about her babies. And the doctor replied, ma'am, your twins are fine. You have a boy and a girl. And since you were unconscious, your brother has named the children. And she thought to herself, oh, my, my brother's unpredictable and sometimes can be irresponsible. So she looked at the doctor and she said, well, what, what did my brother name my daughter? And the doctor said he named her Denise. And she thought, oh, I love that. That's a sweet name. That's good. Well, what did she name my son? Denephew. <laughs> so what's in a name? You know, I, I almost feel like I should have warned you before I told you that story. That's, I, I heard a few groans in the audience. All right, enough of the silliness. Spurgeon set a great introductory comment for us. Look what he said about the importance of the names of God. There is something in every name of God which may breed faith in our souls. Whether we know him as Jehovah, Elohim, Shaddai, or Lord, or by whatsoever other name he has been pleased to manifest himself, that title becomes the ground of our confidence and is the means of fostering faith in his people's minds when they come to understand its meaning. To a trembling people, the Lord enlarges on his wonderful names. I think he also does it to excite our wonder and our gratitude. He that loves us so much is Jehovah. He that can create and destroy. He that is the self-existent God. He, even he, has set his heart upon his people and loves them and counts them precious in his sight. It's a marvelous thing. The more one thinks of it, the more shall he be overwhelmed with astonishment. 
that he who is everything should love us who are less than nothing. It is the Holy One who has deigned to choose and to love unholy men and to look upon them in grace and save them from their sins that you may bow low in loving gratitude. God lets you see who he is. There is so much in a name, especially in a name of God. And the name for our consideration today, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. That needs to become more and more familiar in our vocabulary. The name Shaddai has some interesting meanings, to say the least. Most scholars say that Shaddai is derived from the Hebrew root word Shadu, which means mountain. Thus the translation God Almighty or God the Overpowerer, speaking of his might over humanity's frailties. Other Bible scholars have said that Shaddai is from the Hebrew root word Shad, which means breast, specifically a woman's breast. This meaning points to God's ability to nurture and satisfy. In fact, in Andrew Jukes' book, The Names of God, a fantastic biblical scholar, he draws attention on this aspect of the meaning of Shaddai to an old Greek story from Greek anthology about a woman and her baby who were out tending to a herd of goats. And unperceived to the mother, the baby had crawled over to a cliff's edge. And the mother, afraid to take a step close to her, you know, many times the infant, when you take a step close to her, they immediately move away thinking you're playing a little game and they want you to come catch them. She didn't want to move toward him thinking it would be too close to the edge. So what did she do? She simply uncovered her breast, and the baby immediately came home. I told you this was an interesting name. Other scholars think that it's not just one or the other, but rather it's a combination of both of these ideas. Mountain speaks of might and power. Breast speaks of nourishment. Together, the names mean the all-sufficient one, the one mighty to provide. This name is used 48 times in Scripture. And the situations where it's used speak of God overcoming our inadequacies. Yeah, we like that. It speaks of his trustworthiness in keeping his promises. Yeah, we like that. Speaks of his dependability to protect us through whatever calamity we face. Of course, we love that. And it also speaks of his power to make our lives fruitful, to make them filled with purpose and give us fulfillment. The bottom line is that this name is wonderfully descriptive of an all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet any need. And the first time that we are introduced to this name is in Genesis chapter 17 with the story of Abram and Sarai. Abraham and Sarah. God made a promise to them 
24 years earlier that he would give them a family and that they would become a great nation. You've been watching your Bible Project videos. It's the eternal theme that starts from the beginning and moves out. And this great nation would in turn bless all the nations of the earth. So for nearly a quarter of a century, Abraham and Sarah have been sitting with this promise, still barren, for nearly a quarter of a century. You got that. Now, he's 99 and she's 90, and childbearing years have left both of them long ago. And so you look at this ancient text, beginning with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. Verse 10. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and I and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Okay, now let's think about this for a second from Abraham and Sarah's perspective. Because several years prior to this moment they're having with God, they are aware of their unfaithfulness in taking matters into their own hands with that walk of disobedience in Sarah saying, well, looks like God wants us to take care of this ourselves. Abram, you, t you take my hand, maybe. And you can just sense so much trouble, so much jealousy, so much spite. So Abram, in unfaithfulness, listens to the poor counsel, in this case, of his wife. And he commits this heinous act of unfaithfulness. And Sarah and Hagar begin with this tremendous tension. But it was all because Abraham and Sarah were trying to help out God. I've told you this before, and I'll keep telling you it as long as I'm preaching. Has it ever occurred to us, has it ever dawned on us that nothing has ever dawned on God? Nothing ever occurs to God. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our input. He is all-powerful. He's all-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He has everything all figured out for a plan, a dream that's beyond anything any of us could come up with. And God says to Abraham and Sarah, I don't need you too and Hagar to help me keep my promises. I am your El Shaddai. I am your sufficient one. 
I am the one mighty to provide. And when God gives Abraham this particular name of himself, El Shaddai, did you notice that the text says that Abraham immediately fell face down to the ground? And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think one is he just feels the guilt over him trying to take matters into his own hands and the awareness of his problem and the ensuing future of that problem, which we are still bearing benefits of today. Thank you very much, Abraham. I think that just hit him. The weight of that hit him. But I think it was something else, too. I think another reason was that in spite of Abraham's own unfaithfulness, God was still faithful. He still was wanting to come to Abraham as El Shaddai, the promise-keeping protector, wanting to be Abraham's plan maker. The reason I hit this is because I think it had to have been similar to what Peter felt when he had been fishing all night and had caught nothing. And then the next morning, Jesus says, hey, put out. And let's, he's cleaning his nets after nothing. And Jesus says, all right, we'll, we'll give this another go. I want you to put the nets. Lord, I've been doing this all night, and we haven't caught a thing yet. Well, of course, he does it, and he, the net's filled with so much fish, the boat's nearly sink. And Peter falls down on his face, and he realizes, I doubted him. I I don't, I don't know anything. I think Abraham's hit the same. He just falls face down. You you actually want to be my El Shaddai after everything I've done? Y'all, this is such a comforting name. El Shaddai. In all of our missteps, in all of our rebellion, God still comes around saying, Will you have me as your El Shaddai? Your God is like this. Wanting to lure us back from the cliffs of destruction with his own comfort and provision. That's, that's an image, isn't it? Dr. David Jeremiah, that many of us love to listen to, has a fantastic word picture of this ever-flowing fountain. It's accessible and it's attractive with all of the fresh and the pure water. Copious amounts of water gurgle and splash from rock to rock as if dancing down stair steps. And it's here that all who want to find this overflow of abundance They're ready to meet our every need, whether it's to irrigate the crops or it's to water the flocks or it's to quench thirst. And the fountain never diminishes. Even in times of drought, it's there, ever available. Now, imagine a person deliberately ignoring the fountain. Let's turn that thing off. With illogical obstinacy, he prefers to dig a hole in the ground in hope, in hope of some kind of runoff from the water, which he quickly puts into a broken cistern. And all he's left with is wet dirt, mud. That's the Bible's picture 
of those looking for meaning in wrong places. And the world is filled with broken systems. And we can all easily identify that. And only Jesus can give us this lasting fulfillment. Look what he said. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, all of us remember the first time he spoke these words. It was to a five-time divorcee who was living with her sixth man out of wedlock. And she was so receptive to these words. It made her turn around and run back to the town and tell everybody. She couldn't stop talking. The one who was shunned and the one who wanted to be by herself because she was shunned now just went openly, forcing this message on everyone who would listen. Could broken dreams actually make us more receptive to God's word? When a spouse is neglectful, could nourishment be found in this name, El Shaddai? When living with unbearable pain is our course, could proclaiming out loud El Shaddai actually bring real comfort? When you're completely alone, and feeling dreadfully empty. Is El Shaddai giving you a chance to see that he really can be enough? Does God sometimes allow good dreams to shatter in an effort to arouse a better dream of knowing him as El Shaddai? Some of you have become lifeguards. And you know that in water safety, a cardinal rule is never to swim out to a drowning adult and try to save them as long as they are thrashing around. To do so is probably to commit suicide. As long as a drowning adult thinks that they can help themselves, then they're dangerous to anyone who tries to help them. And the reason is because their tendency is to grab the one thing that's trying to help them and they'll end up being so uncontrolled that they'll pull themselves and the other one there to assist down into the water. The correct way to rescue an adult who's drowning is to stay far enough away where they can't grab you. Sounds awful, doesn't it? And then you wait. And when that drowning person finally gives up and stops thrashing around, then you make your move. And at that point, the drowning one won't work against you, but they'll, they'll actually let you help them. Could this be a word for us? Is it possible that God is actually waiting for you to stop thrashing about thinking that you can be self-sufficient? 
and take care of this problem on your own? When you've never ever even uttered from your lips the name El Shaddai? I've got this thing. I can take care of this relationship. I can take care of this financial deal. I've got my life. I know things are rough to draw about. I'm not, I don't want to bother you with you. And I know you're busy, Father. I don't know. You never, ever admit. I wonder if God's waiting for us to admit that we can't do it on our own and that we actually need his help. Is he wanting for you to draw near to him in surrender? Jesus' little brother, most scholars think that Jesus' little brother was actually the person that wrote the book of James. James, Jesus' little brother. I wonder if James got this from Jesus. He actually said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Could that be because being close to El Shaddai is where protection is to be found? Look at this great psalm. Whoever dwells in the shelter of El Elyon will rest in the shadow of Shaddai. I will say of Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress, my Elohim in whom I trust. Has it ever occurred to us that in order to be in someone's shadow, we need to be close to them? He who dwells in the shelter of El Elyon will rest in the shadow. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Forgive us for self. We are completely and utterly dependent upon you for everything, for the breath that we take. Nothing in our hands do we bring. We don't even have hands to lift out to receive. We need you for everything. Let us become a people familiar with your name, El Shaddai. We sing to you right now, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to remain seated, and I want you to sing this and let them sing over you. Let him speak to you. <laughs> 